All right, all right, all right. Here we go. This is Ryan Miller, and on today's Brew Theology Podcast, we get to sit down with Craig Brook. Craig is a dear friend. He is a pub theologian. He's a Kansas City Royals fanatic. Craig's a gardener, and this pastor is also a Calvinist. You heard me right, Calvinist. I'm not a Calvinist. The friends here sitting down with Craig are not Calvinist. Most of the people that I know in the Christian world and even in the non-Christian world look at Calvinists a little bit cross-eyed. And that's why we have Craig on the show right now to talk specifically about this because Craig is a dear friend who can actually sit down with somebody, disagree with them, and express his mind in a very gracious and humble way. So we're going to be talking about uh, tulip. Tulip's more than a flower. We'll talk about why Craig's a Calvinist, how Calvinists are relevant and could be relevant again if you don't think they are. If you're actually inclined uh, to become a Calvinist by the end of this episode and you want to share this brew online, please do so. It was all predestined. But you might not agree. You, you might think that Craig has lost his mind and he's on another theological planet. That's okay. Craig will still give you free vegetables at the end of the season. That's the kind of guy he is. He's so kind, in fact, that he invited us into his home in his basement and he gave us some of his Stranahan whiskey barreled stout that was homebrewed from his own hands. Craig is a great guy. So thank you, Craig, for being a good sport, for being on the show, and for being our friend. If you like this episode, please share it on Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, at Twitter, we're Brew underscore Theology. At Facebook and Instagram, we are at Brew Theology. Also, check out the website, brewtheology.org, and become a partner, sponsor maybe, or be a monthly contributor, whatever you would like. We would appreciate that. Also, rem- just a reminder that there is Theology Beer Camp coming up on August 18th through 19th here in Denver, Colorado. So go to theologybeercamp.com and learn more about that. We're also going to be at the Wild Goose Festival July 13th through 16th. We'll have some podcasting going on there. We'll also have a booth. We'd love to meet you. And we will see you on the other side of this episode, friends. Peace. All right, so here we are in the basement of Pastor Brooks' house. Here we are. Sir Craig. Pastor Brook. You can call me Pastor Pants. Pastor Pants. Let's tell us about the meaning behind Brook Pants. Yeah, so Brook is the uh, Dutch word for pants. So I went to a predominantly Dutch descendant. Well, I, I grew up in a Dutch descendant area. So I got to college and everybody's like, hey, you know what your last name means? Yes, it means pants. Yeah, it means pants. So in college, my nickname was Pants. So speaking of your childhood, what was the spiritual background or religious background of your that childhood? Was, that was Dan, by the way. Hey, hey, we, by the way, we've got Dan in the house. What up? What up, yo? We got Pastor Pants. <laughs> we should start off. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. I'm Ryan, and then we've got a friend to the left of me, Rob. Rob's going to chime in because this is going to get fun tonight. We'll see what happens. Here we go. I'm Dan. And Dan wants to talk about childhood stuff. Childhood stuff. Let's start there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna give my background. You guys can listen to other podcasts because <laughs> I've said it so many times. It's just embarrassing at this point. So uh, yeah, like give us a little background on on your spiritual slash uh, religious upbringing. Yeah, my spiritual pedigree. Uh, there you go. I grew up in a very small town, northwest Iowa. Uh, Ireton is my hometown. Population six hundred, and uh, it was a. Uh, Small, uh, well, Calvinist area. Lots of people from the Christian Reformed Church, and they tended to settle in pockets 
So the Dutch immigrants came over to New York, and then some of them came over to western Michigan and central and northwest Iowa. And then there's pockets also in, like, Montana and then um, along the coast in California. Uh, so I grew up in one of those pockets in northwest Iowa, Sioux County. And, uh, yeah, grew up in a Christian home, went to the Christian Reformed Church in Ireton, went to the Ireton Christian Grade School and Christian High School, and then on to Dort with a T, not a K. Not Dork? You sure? Not with a K. College in Sioux Center, Iowa, before going on to Calvin Seminary and then starting uh, in on my ministry, professional ministry path, um, in a Christian Reformed church in New Jersey. So, yeah, so upbringing until now was pretty conservative part of the country, um, theologically and uh, sociologically. And, um, yeah, that's... So that's when, when you and I met, you had been here a few years, I had moved, been here just a few months, and I met you guys, you invited me over to your house because the Brooks are very uh, hospi- hospitable. Your Dutch reform cells. Small, the small town does teach one a lot about right. bringing people in, for yeah. sure. And I remember the one, one of the first things I, I asked you, and I go, I think I could be friends with this guy. My internal processor then spoke out loud. And I said, are you cool with being friends with the guy who is the furthest thing removed from Calvinism? Yeah. And it was an odd question. And I apologize now. Because <laughs> who says that on the first date? Did he, did he just introduce himself? He's like, hi, I'm Craig Pants, and I'm a Calvinist. Like, how did you know he was a Calvinist? I, you know, that's a good question. I, uh, I think I, I probably did my, I usually do my homework there, when somebody invites me over. I was, wearing, I was wearing my Calvinist t-shirt that day. <laughs> yeah. but, I, I, but I remember saying that to you, and, and I don't, your response was pretty, you were pretty cool and chill, I and mean, that's your personality. But afterward, I'm kind of wondering, like, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, you're in Platte Park. It's not Ireton. It's not Iowa. It's not Dutch Reform, even though this neighborhood at one point was. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, so I guess part of my journey has led to being more comfortable with not Calvinists. Um, so, you know, when we when I finished seminary and moved out east, um, was exposed to a new part of our denominational heritage and exposure uh, and found that uh, as much as I loved the people who were part of our church, um, I also loved the folks that were not part of our church. And so some of my favorite parts of ministry there were actually playing basketball with guys at the YMCA um, who didn't go to church and you know, just found it interesting that I as a pastor was playing basketball with them at noon um, and, you know, it's funny because the first thing that they would do when I told them I was a pastor was they would apologize for cussing and, you know, and then would wait, I think, for me to invite them to church. Um, but over the course of time, I just valued those relationships. So when we came here to Denver uh, six years ago now, um, you know, we recognized that there, there weren't exactly, like, Calvinists walking around looking for other Calvinists. <laughs> so, you know, it's not like Platt Park is CalvinistOnly.com. I think I put that in the blog a couple years ago, too. Um, you know, so we, we, you know, FarmersOnly.com, you heard of it? Oh, yeah. CalvinistOnly.com. Haven't haven't heard of that one yet, but it's I'm sure it's coming. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't even know that 50-plus years ago this neighborhood was Dutch Reformed Calvinists. No, I knew that. You knew I knew that. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, in fact, when we got here... 
uh, we believed uh, that we would be moving elsewhere. We landed in this neighborhood, I mean, you might say by accident. I might, I might say it was predestined. Here we, we go. Land. It's already started. <laughs> um, but, no, we knew very well that this, this had uh, been where all those Dutch immigrants landed when they started the Christian Reformed Church in Denver. Um, and so over the course of time, we knew there was a lot of changeover. So it was sort of ironic that we uh, moved into this neighborhood where there are already, at the time, there were two Christian Reformed churches, um, but none of the folks who attend those churches, or most of the folks who attend those churches, um, weren't actually living here. So uh, we knew that the history, but we also knew the more recent history that, um, you know, the, the churches weren't necessarily connecting with, with folks from the neighborhood. And so Calvinist only does not exist, but CalvinistSingles.com does. There you go. Calvinist Singles? Calvinist Singles. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're a Calvinist, that's a great website to I mean, go it's, to. You're going to get hooked up. It looks like the website was made quite a long time ago. Really? Um, maybe around the Reformation. Um, <laughs> yes. And... It seems like it's private. I think you gotta like sign up, oh. and and maybe I don't know if you get vetted, or if they have some way of checking your elected status. Exactly, somebody has to determine. Probably <laughs> takes like three witnesses. <laughs> Anyways, we're we're being so sarcastic uh, right now. It's because we're all friends. We are all friends. So we're not, you know. It's good. Yeah. So uh, it, it was it was predetermined. That Craig and I would become friends, and that Dan would also become friends, and that Rob would join the crew of friends in the hood, and that we would all just talk about Calvinism tonight. Yeah. So I was a Calvinist at one point. And <laughs> How long? He, I promise. So we recently had Dr. Craig Blomberg on the show, and he, you know, he can't say this for certainty, but during the time when I was at Denver Seminary with him, I was a Calvinist for a year. You can ask my wife. I didn't just flirt with it. Dan was also a Calvinist, yeah? Yeah, I was... I, I came to Calvinism as a a rebellion almost against some of the, like, harmful theology that I grew up with. Um, and I attributed to Arminianism, but it really wasn't that. It was more fundamentalism. Mm. But I ended up in Calvinism as a way out, and I appreciated, like, this, you know... Um, way of, of of analyzing scripture and tradition and all this other stuff, which is actually very Wesleyan. Side note. <laughs> God rest but, his soul. But yeah, I was I was Calvinist for like I wanna say it was it was less than a year, but it was close. And you can also ask my wife because I remember <laughs> wanting to read Driscoll together. <laughs> and I laugh because it's the Mark, Dris- the Mark Driscoll. The Mark Driscoll. Maybe he's so, listening now. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? <laughs> so speaking of Mark Driscoll and John Piper, and so when people hear Calvinism, Craig, this is this is It's neo-Calvinism. And yeah. It, there, I do. How do you feel about that? I mean, do you? It's not a one-size-fits-all, Calvinism. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, like, I was into Piper, Driscoll, MacArthur. Yeah. Uh, well, so I'm a little older than you are. Um, oh, just a little bit. Just a little. Um, so... I remember reading a text uh, that Piper wrote when I was in seminary, and not, I mean, with no offense to John Piper, but uh, wasn't that impressed. Um, so, <laughs> it's like, well... I had some John Piper quotes tonight that I was yeah, going to throw your way. Sorry. I, I don't know. Just based on that memory, I just, um, you know, so 
I, I just hate labels. So to to say that this is Calvinism, uh, I mean, it's it's like any other theology. It takes its different shapes and forms during the different times, and and everybody sort of defines it based on context. Um, and so, you know, my my understanding of Calvinism doesn't necessarily represent the vast, um, well, if there is a vastness of Calvinism, it doesn't necessarily represent that. Um, it probably fits somewhere in the middle. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm necessarily a follower of any one particular person that others would say, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, is there a Piper, Piperin or a Driscollin? <laughs> Like, I, you know, there's, there are different versions of Calvinism that are represented by those folks. And so I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily subscribe to either one of them in their particularities of, of what it means to be a Calvinist. So why do you think that there, there's, let, let's, let's save that question for later. I was going to ask about why specifically millennials are attracted to the neo-reform movement. And I don't know if you can speak into that maybe later, but you specifically, you have a different version of, of, Craig, the Calvinist, what has drawn you to the Calvinist way? You went to Calvin Seminary, you're a CRC pastor, you're ordained, so and... I, I want I want the listeners to know that, I mean, he had just confessed that he doesn't like labels, and as I you know. said, Craig, the Calvinist, he kind of cringed a little bit. No, no, but no. His, his Slack account is Calvinist, right. for fun. Yeah, and I know yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is some of this. Is it's fun. because we've labeled him that, and maybe maybe it's yeah. not fair. It's not well, fair. So so okay so to the to the label thing, right? So uh, coming into the the sort of the pub theology culture, which is a culture of its own, um, I came out of a place where I was as a Calvinist in the majority culture, and so you know you grow up thinking everyone thinks this way, and then you step out of it slightly when I got to New Jersey and. You know, I was still a pastor of a of a uh, established Calvinist denominational church, uh, and had interaction with you know like the guys at the YMCA who, you know, we're not Calvinists, we're not Christian. I mean, the, although if you ask them, they would say, "Well, yeah, I'm I'm Christian," you know, but church church folks would say, "Well, they're not actually." I mean, you know, we can talk about ecclesiology sometime too. But um, when I came here and started. Uh, into the pub theology culture and went, there is no one else here who is Calvinist. Um, you know, at first I was like, oh, I, maybe I'm offended by that. And then I went, no, no, I'm just going to live into that and, and be okay with it and just mess with people. Um, because, you know, the, the predominant narrative of pub theology, we, we start every week by saying, what's your, what's your spiritual heritage? What's your spiritual pedigree? And most often what we hear is, I used to be this, and now I'm this. And so for me, it was like, well, the thing that I am is what I used to be. And so like, okay, I'm Calvinist. And then I just sort of let people react to that, whatever they want to. And some people are like, you know, they get this look of horror on their face and other people are like, I don't, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Um, so it's an opp- opportunity for me to sort of define what I mean by it. Um, and so, you know, what drew me into it, I mean, there, there's the whole nature versus nurture debate, right? So I was raised in it. So it's the only thing that I knew, um, you know, I, I guess I wasn't really exposed to uh, any other 
uh, theological trains of thought, except for uh, when we would say, well, we don't believe that. So, you know... Definitely not Catholic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yes. You know, so the, the Protestant Reformation was a huge way, like, we define ourselves by what we're not. So, growing up, like, that was a lot of... Um, what we heard and what we were taught. Um, but I think as I aged and matured, uh, you know, some would debate whether or not I've matured yet. Um, barrel aged. I think I'm on the way. I'm barrel aged. Mm. Um, the thing that attracted me to Calvinism, but more probably Reformed theology, uh, is just the high regard for Scripture, that it's the starting point and the ending point. And life happens... And everything that we understand, we measure against uh, what we understand by the truth of Scripture. And that's how we understand life, and that's how we constantly wrestle with uh, our present reality. So we view everything through the lens of Scripture. Uh, and, you know, you, you referenced Dr. Blomberg earlier. Just the idea that uh, there's something inherently true about the Scriptures, um, and we want to do our best to understand those scriptures with uh, as much integrity as we possibly can and that's how we then interpret what what's happening in the world around us so that continues to be my draw to I mean if you can call it Calvinism um, I would I would call it biblical theology <laughs> um, rather than saying well Calvin was the one who discovered this because I, I don't necessarily think that's true so yeah and, and to be an an apologetic person for Calvin, if, even if he needs one. But for somebody who's not a Calvinist to say, studying the history of John Calvin in Geneva as it, within the Reformation after Luther, I think for what he did in, in his culture and the context was pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, I think the pendulum had to swing because the, the, the scripture, this high, this value of scripture that, that now we take for granted back then People were just then beginning to understand, oh, we can read the scripture in our own language and you're going to teach us that versus somebody who was talking in a language that we didn't understand and and basing that on tradition and authority. I think that Calvin, while having his issues, he he brought in a lot of uh, both tradition, scripture, science. I mean, it wasn't just where today when we think of scripture, we think of just this fundamentalist view. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's a lot of uh, misconceptions that we do have about Calvin today. Yeah. Even for somebody who's not a Calvinist at all, I would I respect him for his time and, and the work that he did for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know we we talked a little bit in seminary about you know just how he worked to cr- essentially create this utopia. Yeah. And so it was it was not necessarily necessarily theology in a vacuum, but it was what does a society look like that actually puts theology into practice. And goes well. If we are going to create heaven on earth, what what does it actually look like uh, in our city? And so there's there's something I think really value about that, uh, at least in its intent. And you know you can dis- you disagree about how it's actually carried out, um, but the fact that he worked to put into practice the things that he believed and professed, I think is is admirable, no matter where you stand on the spectrum. Yeah, and he was a friend of the immigrants, by the way. <laughs> Let's not forget, in a time such as this, he's a good example. I didn't know about that. Yeah. So, Craig, let's dive into the tulip. 
It's a pretty flower, and you're a pretty boy. Thank you. Who handles flowers and fruits and vegetables in the garden. By the way, if you don't know, Craig is a pastor of the Table Ministry here in Denver, Colorado. And he farms, and he gives his food away. So the tulip is going to be appropriate for you tonight. We haven't grown any tulips yet. No tulips? No. Tell us about, what's the tulip? I want to hear about the tulip. What is the tulip? What does that even mean? Uh, It's a bulb you put in the ground. (laughs) Flower? Total, total depravity, T. Okay, that one. Unlimited, let's keep going. Yeah. You know, we've got listeners that are not Christian. Sure. We've got listeners, like I didn't know about Calvinism until I, you know, automagically found it on the Google machine or something. (laughs) And, uh, good call. You know, Calvinism is a strain of, 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 uh, of Christian thought that came out of the Protestant Reformation Mm -hmm. and, and. I don't know how far back this tulip thing goes, but as of recent, um, they've kind of narrowed it down to these five points, and they can be, it's an, it's a, what is it? An acronym, right? It's an acronym, mm-hmm. yeah. It's an acronym, T-U-L-I-P, mm-hmm. and I think we'll go over some of those. Yeah, it's uh, John Calvin's followers, after he had passed, had had, had to double down a bit. So there's a, there's a little bit of a debate whether John Calvin would actually ascribe to the tulip. But nonetheless, it's Calvinist doctrine or just theology? Yeah. Oh, man. What, or, I guess I would have to say, what, what do you mean by the distinction between those well, two? Well, theology is sort of vague. Yeah. Doctrine is a little bit more specific, and dogma is the bomb. Yeah. Okay, so at the very least... At the very least, they're Calvinist guidelines. They are. And, and not every Calvinist, you know, adheres to all five. There's such thing as five-point Calvinist, three-point Calvinist, sure. yeah. two and a quarter. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, so, so the five points came out of the Canons of Dort. T. Uh, with a T. It spelled differently than Dort College, ironically, right? So they're just playing Was that D- D-O-R-D-T? That's Dort College. D-O-R-T. Is the canons of Dort. Oh. Right. Dortrecht. Okay, so I'm not a historical theologian, um, but it, it just strikes me that usually when we say these are the five points of doctrine, that it comes out of somebody is teaching something we're not quite sure about. We're going to have a synod or a gathering to determine what is, um, you know, what's true. Right, and so we get together and we go. Well, do we believe this guy? Do we believe this guy? Do we believe something in in between? Okay, okay. Well, these are the orthodox perspectives of this particular doctrine, and so the canons of Dort arose out of the synod of Dort. So the the five points sort of arose out of a disagreement of teaching and doctrine, and so the the church of the time was trying to determine well what what do we believe in terms of orthodox teaching according to the church. And so the five points of Calvinism are conveniently uh, put into uh, the acronym TULIP, which is convenient because, um, you know, the, the Dutch folks love their tulips, the, the actual flowers. So every year, right, Northwest Iowa, Pella, Iowa, we have the Tulip Festival, right? So, and I've been to Pella. It's a beautiful place. It is. And so the tulip, tulip time is coming up and we celebrate the flowers. Um, but in some ways it's also a, a theological acronym to, I mean, I don't know if it's, that's on purpose, but I would totally be a Calvinist if there was a festival too. There you go. Makes sense. So it happens in West Michigan. Christians love in the festivals. In Holland, Michigan, they do on there too. So you can hit all three tulip time festivals in subsequent weekends. 
if you really wanted to. So, anyways, five points of Calvinism. You want to take them on? Let's do it. Total depravity. Mm-hmm. T. Letter T. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, the idea that um, uh, humans are by nature um, completely and utterly depraved. Now, some people would say, well, we're not actually as bad as we could be, um, but sinful sinful by nature. So that's the whole idea of total depravity. So Tulip, right? Yeah. That by nature, we're not inclined to love God. Correct. We're inclined to be, um, for lack of better words, selfish, greedy, self-serving in some some sense. Yeah. And it's interesting because I've I've talked to coworkers. Um, I'm an engineer, and not that that means anything theologically, but a lot of my coworkers are not religious. And um, you know, when I talk to some of them about what's going on politically, or you know, there, there's a a big shooting at a school or something like that, and they'll a lot of times they sound Calvinist. Actually, they're like, "Yeah, I just don't think that by nature we're we're any good." Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. A Calvinist would say, "Well, is that Calvinism or is that biblical theology?" I mean, we, we, we tend to be arrogant in that way, and we go, well, Calvinism is actually biblical. Wouldn't we, I mean, couldn't we even trace this to Augustine? St. Yeah. Augustine is the one who started the, the doctrine of original sin. Mm. I mean, he, he interpreted Genesis in such a way, and then John Calvin took that and continued that with his followers. Mm. When, I, when I talk to, to, well, my experiences have been largely with the Russian Orthodox Church, mm. and what... Um, I became friends with Father Alexis in Colorado Springs. He's uh, he has a parish, I think now, but he he that that concept of original sin was pretty foreign to the Russian Orthodox. Mm. It's more close to original blessing, but you know I didn't get into the nuances of okay, what does that actually right. mean? So before Augustine, mean? you had the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholics that that had split, and before that, then you had the Jews who had the Hebrew scriptures, where Genesis originates. And even the Jews would, would say there is depravity, there is sin, but they wouldn't call it total depravity, they wouldn't call it original sin. So I'm, I'm just, I am really curious. I, I, I would agree that when I look at what humans are capable of, mm-hmm. I would say that you, I would call it sin, somebody might call it something else. I would say there's depravity, somebody might call it something else. But to call it total depravity, to call it original sin, or yeah, I, I am just kind of curious where do, where does that come from and how does one how, how does one come to a place where that is the t that's the first place you start and why is it the first place you start yeah but i think there there has to be a distinction and maybe you know we're making assumptions about what total depravity means right where total depravity can simply mean that apart from god there is no salvation Mm-hmm. Or something like that so, of the sort, rather than there's absolutely zero goodness in mankind, you know? Right, so P- Pastor Pants, tell us. Mm-hmm. What well, do you th- so you would say that we start with T uh, because it conveniently forms into the word tulip, but <laughs> ultimately we would say, as true Calvinists would say, it's actually ultip is the order. If you were to follow the five points of Calvinism. This is new new to me. Yeah, so unconditional election is actually the first thing that we would say happens. Unconditional election. Mm -hmm. We'll go there next. Let's go to Tulip. Or the T. But that's interesting, though, that that, that that's the first one. Yeah. 
Uh, so total depravity. Uh, what was the question that you asked? Well, for you specifically, what does total depravity even mean? Why is it important? If you have people who have come before Calvinist and any of us who who don't understand total depravity, like the Eastern Orthodox tradition and the, even the Jewish people, why is that such an important part of the theological framework? My in my understanding, well, let me say this: the this the distinction about how we view God uh, compared with how people who are not Calvinists think we view God, right? Um, so so. If I understand it correctly, people who are not Calvinists think that Calvinists view God as this angry, uh, punishing God, right? And yeah. so, so total depravity, um, and and the idea of the election is that um, God has somehow chosen just a select few and the rest for damnation. That He somehow takes pleasure in that. And and I would say that the idea of total depravity has to do with. Uh, actually revealing a loving God who recognizes that uh, in humanity's um, shortcomings as a whole that he has he has chosen to overcome our failing as an entire human race uh, and loves us so much that in spite of our depravity has then chosen to love us. Um, and so I think the importance in terms of understanding total depravity has to do with the power of love, of God's love, more uh, than our ability or inability to love God first. So Calvin talks about a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of regeneration and uh, turning our hearts toward God, because by nature they would not choose God. Like, as as humans, our nature is not necessarily to do good, and some people would say, well, actually, by nature, our, our choice is to hate God, which is pretty strong language. Um, but... It is. Right? Yeah, very strong. <laughs> um, and yet, uh, somehow, our hearts are able to make that turn. Uh, and so... To some, it sounds like splitting hairs. Like, did we choose that, or what actually enabled us to choose it? And so, you know, the, the Calvinists would say, well, it's only because of the indwelling of, of God himself um, that we would be able to even conceive of choosing to love. And so, in the, the act of choosing itself is not actually a choosing, it's that God has chosen first to dwell within us to then enable our hearts to have an effect towards him. So that's going to move toward limited atonement, but before we, that's limited. Mm -hmm. There's an unconditional election that you start with. That the the, ooh, tulip, the uh, ultip. Ultip, oh yeah. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, ultip. So it's unconditional. Right. So there's there's really nothing, it's it's, it's unconditional. Right. Yeah. Talk more about about that. Yeah, so I I think the beauty of that is, like, that's what grace is, right? Um, It's a completely free gift, something that we have, you know, before we even had a chance to earn love, it was given to us as a free gift. And so, you know, the, the idea that all of us, as a human race, uh, 
are worthy of God's love, not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. Um, like that, that's a pretty powerful narrative to be able to give to people. So, you know, whether you're Calvinist or not, I mean, I, I hate the label again, <laughs> but, you know, anybody who's human uh, is worthy of that love, not, not because of what we've done, but because of who God is. And so that's where we start, like unconditional, that God has um, such a great capacity to love God's creation that all of us are, um, I mean, and I'm sure we'll get into the, you know, well, the, the limited part of it, but, but that, but that all of us, (laughs) but that all of us are potentially included in that love. I mean, that's equally as powerful as total depravity. So based on, on, on what you've said so far, um, on the T part of the total depravity, Mm -hmm. what I, uh, I'm going to, you know, go back on my experience and not so much like what I think that you believe or anything like that. I'm just going to go off my experience, one thing that kind of I struggled with when I was a Calvinist for a while was the idea of total depravity because I kind of I kind of bought into it for for a while, and um, I couldn't get past the fact that on one hand, by nature we cannot turn our hearts toward God, and then on the other that we're somehow made in the image of God, mm-hmm. right? That we're almost created as flawed creatures. Hmm. And that's something that I struggled with. And I'm kind of curious, how, how do you deal with that in your own mm-hmm. journey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess I, I would say in response to that, there's, um, there's a, a distinction between being an image bearer of God, um, and being a perfect image bearer of God. Um, I th- and I think that that's, you know, some people talk about the God-sized hole in your heart. I mean, that's sort of a contemporary schmaltzy way to describe that, you know, some we all have this longing for something greater than ourselves. Um, but with, you know, in and of ourselves, we're unable to fill that hole. And preachers like to to play on that and, and you know, pull on that. Um, and I, w- I would say there's some truth in that. Um, in that, that as image bearers of God, so the idea that uh, when God made the world, uh, that he made us in his image and in his likeness, so the, the Genesis creation account, uh, that somehow we, we must look like God, and there's also an, a capacity within the human race to represent God. So do you see it more as a potentiality then? to bear the image of God and it's not a given. Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> I would say it's both and. So like, half, you're so Buddhist right now. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so is it half total depravity then? Uh, well, so, partial de- depraved. Partially depraved. Well, I bet he's, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but I would struggle right now to like, am I going to give my personal beliefs or am I going to try to encompass, you know, Calvinism as a whole? It gets yeah. tougher. No, no, no. I'm, do- I'm doing my best to to represent Calvinism as a whole. Yeah. And to say I that we, so. we all bear the image of God and yet there's something missing. And that's that's that whole piece of the original the original sin, the the fall of humanity. 
So prior to the fall, <clears throat> there was there was community with God. That you know, Adam and Eve walked in the garden. They were with God, and then when original sin entered and the fall happened, somehow this separation occurred, and we've been trying to bridge that gap ever since. Um, so the image of God, you know, as humans, we we continue to bear the image of God, and yet. Um, because of that, um, that choice, right? The Calvinists really talk about that. That choice, eons ago, um, a separation has been formed, and that depravity has been passed on from generation to generation. And you know, folks disagree about original sin and what that actually means. Um, but but the idea is still remains that there's a gap between. Um, humans and God and that relationship that was at one time present but now is no more and we're still trying to to figure that one out so and then I guess my question on the you on uh unlimited what is it again election election unconditional 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 <laughs> I almost made you a universalist there for uh, a second yeah, hey. Whew, that's the next point but uh unconditional election Carl mm-hmm. Bart you know I Theologically, what, when I when I hear you explain unconditional election, mm-hmm. and I kind of tap into that that uh, that Calvinist former side, mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I could see that. But then you have the side of okay, if there's unconditional election, there's there's still because of the L part. Eventually, that's where we're going next. Mm-hmm. There's still those that are not chosen, right? And there's that's the wrath that's to come for those, and it's. Since there isn't that choice, it's I kind of wonder how that ends up um, factoring into, you know, why why aren't they chosen? Why do they deserve sure. this wrath? And you know, the arguments that I've heard are that, but because by default we're all depraved, mm-hmm. you don't deserve anything mm-hmm. other than wrath. And um, you know, I'd like to move on, but. That's something to keep in mind, I want, as a conversation piece as we go to the L. John Calvin says this, and this is in the Institutes. Oh, man, I knew he was going to do this. <laughs> John Calvin, Institutes. He's dropping the JC. All yeah. Right. Number Trey, 21, <laughs> comma 5. Okay. Here we go. Quote, and I quote, God's eternal decree by which he compacted with himself what he willed to become of each man. Mm-hmm. For all are not created in equal condition, Rather, eternal life is foreordained for some, eternal damnation for others. Mm-hmm. So limited atonement. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the biggest sticking point, right? I mean, <clears throat> so for my elder in New Jersey, who probably, he's probably not listening to this, but he knows who he is, who says he's like a three and a half point Calvinist, like that's the sticking point. Um, is that the half or not well, one of I think the three? It's the full, I think it's the full one on that one. Um, but I'd have, I'd have to ask him. Yeah, I mean, the, the the issue is, well, are all saved? I mean, um, and so if you start to play that out and go, well, if all are saved, then we might as well all be universalists, and, and then it doesn't really matter. Karl Barth was yeah. one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. He would never say that, but we can say that after looking at his writings. Yeah. And he was a Calvinist. But if you want to believe in a God who is just then some who are unjust are deserving of wrath. And 
you know, and I think that we live in, especially today, uh, we would say that there are those who deserve justice. And, and we fall on both sides of that, right? And we say, you want justice, that means you deserve the benefit of justice. And then by nature, there are others who then deserve the punishment of justice. And so if we believe in a God who is just, then, all right, well, some deserve the benefit and others deserve the punishment. Um, and so, yeah, if you take it all together, um, then, um, yeah, if there is unconditional election, then there must also be um, the, the opposite of that. So uh, to show the justice of God, um, yeah, some will be punished. Now, you know, the, I think where the, the, the challenge comes in is that most people, when they hear that, go, well, it must be a small few, and Calvinists must think there's only the, as we used to say in the, in the, back in the day, the frozen chosen, right? <laughs> so there's only a small handful of folks that have been chosen, and therefore they are the elect, um, and the rest of eternity, creation, past, and yet to come, are those who are deserving of judgment. And I guess this is, this is where I would take a more generous approach to say, well, we, we don't really know who are the elect and who are not. That's, that's in God's eternal decree, as, as John Calvin said. Um, and, you know, depending on how you fall with the order of decrees, um, you know, it, it might be a lot more people than, than we think. Hmm. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have mm-hmm. hated. Malachi 1.3. Oh, this is heavy. Yeah. Irresistible grace. There you go. How, how can it, I mean, you can't resist it. Yeah. Grace has been given. So mm-hmm. what, what is grace? Oh. What, what is grace? How would well, you define grace? You know, the, the Sunday school answer is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Mm-hmm. To use the acronym again, you know, it, as a Christian, it, it bothers me. We haven't talked about Jesus yet. Yeah. I would think that that grace <laughs> is the gift of Christ. Yes, right. And and as you, I'm I'm putting on my Calvinist hat right now, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm Do it. I'm feeling it. Yeah, I'm three beers in. Come on, I'm feeling it. Yeah, it's coming back over. Not quite, but <laughs> <laughs> it's two and a half points. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Christ is that bridge in that in that gap between God and humanity. Yes, correct. Um, the irresistible so irresistible grace is like when you have this beautiful gift that is Christ to the world, and then you have that indwelling Spirit of Christ within you to enable you to turn back to God. How can you resist mm-hmm. the all powerful? So the irresistible grace is still limited. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we just went over L. We did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is there is Unless some you're who, a four point there, but there's some who can't who can't resist. They can't. They, the, the grace is not there. That, I guess that's what's hard for me. Like, I, and I kind of dig the irresistible grace. There's a part of me that gets excited. My old pastoral self wants to talk about. How you know when when God's love is there and Jesus Christ, look what He's done for you. I want to I want to bring Him in. That's great. That's a good message. Mm-hmm. It's the good news. Mm-hmm. But for some people, 
you know, and you look at the history of even people within Christianity, mm-hmm. they have resisted. Mm-hmm. So, so the Calvinists would say, well, that's that's sort of an indicator of the elect. Yes, right. It's the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, that that gives you a hint of mm-hmm. who the elect are. Correct. Right. Yeah, and but I mean the the challenge of it is, as humans, we are we're judgmental people, right? And so we want to say, well, if <clears throat> if someone doesn't respond to the irresist- irresistible grace of Jesus in in our time frame, then we say they're not elect, and we start to to judge them. And we go, well, I mean, I would like to say, well, let's let's back up the truck and go. Um, you know, there's there's time, right? I mean. Um, Un- unconditional election and irresistible grace doesn't mean that we see that uh, as soon as someone is born, right? I mean, the the span of humanity uh, and the span of uh, individual lifetime allows for uh, some leeway, right? So, um, you know, we're we're quick to say someone is elect or someone is not elect when in reality. Uh, I don't think that we can draw such such lines so distinctly. I'm going to bust out a quote here, right. but I'm not going to tell you guys who said this. <laughs> all right. It's a Calvinist. It's a Calvinist. All right, all right, all right. Does, does, does it matter then? I'm going to try. I'm going to try. <laughs> try. <laughs> Before you answer, let me try, and then okay, if you know. Right. You might not know. Okay. <laughs> if the call of God brings about faith then it is not the self-determining power of man that brings him to salvation. If God did base his predestination on faith, which he foresaw, it was a faith which he himself intended to create. So the whole motive for the idea of foreknown faith collapses. It still leaves us with the freedom and right of God to elect or choose whom he will call effectually into faith. For God to predestine someone on the basis of faith, which he himself creates, is the same as basing predestination on the basis of election. All right, I'm going to guess, and no offense. No, no offense. <laughs> no, no offense. Was this to Craig Brook? No, no offense me? to our good friend Craig. I don't write that thing. <laughs> this, these are the mental gymnastics of John Piper himself. This is a Piper quote, but it's, it sounds it sounds Calvinist. Um, hmm. It doesn't, I don't think. No? I mean, because he's, he's basically arguing for, you know, it's not really God's election, it's, it's humanity's choice, right? It, unless I'm hearing it incorrectly. As far as I understand, it has to do with the whole idea of infralapsarian and superlapsarian. Oh, Huh? Now, right. now you got to define these terms. Warning, Warning getting theological. All right, yes. so it has to do with the order of decrees, whether the order of decrees happened before the creation or within the creation, right? So the idea that how much how much does God know before he even begins? So which one's super? Super elapsarian means outside of creation. So before time began. It's not super, it's supra. Supra, so meaning outside I'm of thinking that. Superman, because he's outside yeah. of, you know, and yeah. he comes back I in. Mean, that's the etymology, right. but it's okay. super. Right. I know. I'm and so the divine decrees, did they happen within the confines of the created universe, or did they happen 
before all of that took place. Right? And so, based on what he said, I would say, well, he's, he's an infralapsarian five-point Calvinist. Yeah. And some, you know, people that taught me um, would say, well, actually, I mean, it, it's funny to put God into categories, but we would say, well, God is actually this, a supralapsarian Calvinism, right? Imagine that. We just made God Calvinist. I mean... Yeah, I mean, this is a little side note. I mean, this is the nature of theological conversations. Like, right. Uh, like, all around the table, we'd probably say we don't really know too much of the nature of God, apart from Jesus Christ, no, if you're a super can't. Christian, and you say, you know what? <clears throat> At the very least, it's a God who would rather die for his enemies than kill his enemies. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's... And then, and then from there, we build up all of our theology, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, it's interesting how we make God into the image of our theology. <laughs> well, that's sort of the, the challenge is, um, you know, putting putting all of Scripture together um, and, and determining, well, how does this all fit together? And to, to boil the whole of the Scriptures down to five major points of doctrine, I mean, that's... It's risky business, but at the same time, you go, okay, well, it's, it's helpful for us to to be able to say, well, these, like like um, Dr. Blomberg was saying, it's, it's helpful for us to say, these are the most important things that we want to pass on generation to generation. Um, and if, if in all the five points of Calvinism, the thing that we communicate to people is um, what you just said, Dan, that, that God loves humanity so much that he's willing to sacrifice for humanity— you know, that's that's a pretty powerful message to portray to people, especially today when, you know, we might rather say we are willing to sacrifice humanity for our gods, um, which, I mean, depending on your, well, we can get political, but that's that seems to be human nature, right? I'm willing to sacrifice you for the betterment of me. Uh, when God is saying, I'm willing to sacrifice me for the betterment of you. Yeah, so, so the same God, according to Paul, says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, compassion on whom I will have compassion. So those who are elect, who this limited atonement with, for salvation, with this irresistible grace, because at one point they were totally depraved, but yet they had unconditional <laughs> election, are now persevering yes. as saints. So the yeah. P is perseverance right. in a sense. It's right. funny because the, the only thing I knew about Baptist growing up, so I, I grew up Pentecostal. And I remember my parents telling me, and this could be a false memory, but <laughs> I, because that happens, but I, I, I think I remember my parents telling me a couple of things about Baptists. It was one, that they didn't actually believe in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit didn't do anything because, you know, we spoke in tongues and did all the awesome things. And, uh, you know, we healed people, stuff like that. No biggie, every day. And uh, number two... It was that they they believe that once saved, always saved. Right. That's what I knew about Baptists. They didn't actually believe in the Holy Spirit and this one, the perseverance, perseverance of, saints. of saints. Yeah, you know, when I was in seminary, I heard stories of, <clears throat> you know, folks who were um, 70s, 80s, 90s who were like, uh, I, can't, I can't partake of the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper because I'm not certain that I'm saved. 
Um, and is know, that a requirement? You, do you have to be certain within that Calvinist or Reformed Church to to t- partake of of Lord's Supper? Yeah. In I mean, if you look at the 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 forms, right? So whenever we do official worship services of the church, um, there are officially approved forms for administration of the sacraments. Um, and in the administration of the Lord's Supper, uh, it talks about, I think it's in the words of Paul, that if you uh, eat and drink uh, in an unworthy manner, right, you eat and drink judgment unto yourselves. And so folks who were um, doing, their, doing their best to be pious would say, well, I don't want to eat and drink judgment unto myself. And so if I'm not certain um, that I am saved, then it is better for me not to partake in this sacrament. Um, and so the idea that, well, if, if we subscribe to uh, this, this fifth point, of Calvinism, that, that if you're if you're saved, you're always saved. Then there ought to be uh, some sort of internal confirmation of that. Uh, and and so if I if I don't have that within, then I'm not going to risk it, <laughs> basically, and and further the damage, uh, which is which is interesting to think about. But um, the idea basically behind perseverance of the saints is essentially that if you are the elect, you can't fall into the unelect um, because God's grace doesn't simply run out on you. Um, you know, and so there's, I think it's intended to be uh, a point of comfort um, when in reality it's become uh, probably the opposite for folks who say, well, if I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, what, what does it actually look like to have that confirmation and that affirmation? Um, and, and, you know, coming from uh, an, an area where we value humility, we'd say, well, it's better to think less highly of ourselves and more highly than we ought, uh, and to say, well, I'm probably unworthy and therefore um, I shouldn't partake. And, you know... In my opinion, thankfully, uh, folks have sort of gotten over that idea that, um, you know, we're unworthy because, well, God's love overcomes uh, our unworthiness uh, and extends grace uh, to folks who, yeah, we're we're all undeserving of it. So, yeah, I, I think there's a great comfort in the idea that um, if if God has elected us, that he's not going to change his mind about that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I could see how maybe growing up as a kid with with that assurance could be helpful. And um, even within my own tradition, there was that the only thing that I could remember that would kind of disqualify you from taking communion was if you had something against your brother or sister, right? Mm-hmm. And from my experience, people took that pretty seriously. You know, if if you if you hated Ryan or something like that, you know, you you'd probably skip out on that day and mm-hmm. maybe go ask for forgiveness or have that tough conversation. But You would never hate me, Dan. <laughs> never. Well, and, yeah. it, and in, in our tradition, we, we talked about mutual censure, which is that practice of in the council, so the leaders of the church, the, you know, a meeting prior to um, this, the celebration of the sacrament that 
you would practice that within the council room. So the leaders of the church who are elected by the body of the church to be the leaders of the church would say, well, if I have something against one of the other people in this room, that I'm going to make it right before we go together to the Lord's table. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting thing is, you know, we would practice the sacrament like quarterly, <laughs> which... If, if you follow Calvin, he, like, he would say, well, you should do it every Lord's Day and not, you know, on these randomly appointed quarterly Sundays. Yeah, we would do it. I mean, the way I grew up was once once a month. Yeah. And now I take it every Sunday. Yeah. And it, in my practice as a kid, it was once every three months. And so those mm-hmm. those Sundays... You know, as a kid, honestly, the Sunday before when you read the preparatory form, like, okay, you got a week to get your heart right with God, and then um, you're going to uh, you're going to partake the sacrament the following week. It was like, oh no, this is going to take forever because you know we've got extra stuff to go into the service today. So you know, as a kid, I'm like, oh, instead of an hour, it's going to be an hour and a half, two Sundays in a row. That's the worst, but. You know, when it becomes a regular rhythm of your worship gathering, then, um, you know, it's a pretty powerful thing. So, yeah. So lastly, I, I want to talk more about what you do, who you are beyond Calvinism, because you're more than a Calvinist. And I tell people all the time, one of my best friends in Denver is a Calvinist. <laughs> Which is crazy because I'm not. I mean, I, I mean, I, I and mean, we don't even know what kind of a Calvinist he is. We don't. You know, I've, I've semi. Hey, Dan. I've Dan, Dan wait, up, hold he's on. He's in process. He's in process. Oh, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa! No, no, no! You don't want to remember whoa, the p word. Whoa. In but process. I said Back in. Up. I said in. But you know, I've known Craig a little bit for like two years, and this is the first time we get to sit down and talk about what he actually believes. Because a lot of times in, around the table, he'll take kind of this, you know, neutral, moderate stance. Yeah, it's the of the moderator. And he's, he, he's good like that. He's, he's literally, he's the moderate yeah. tour. And that <laughs> drives know? Dan crazy. Dan, Dan's like, Craig, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe. Yeah. This is a good night. But yeah, I... And I say you're the healthiest Calvinist, the best Calvinist I know, and you always say maybe I'm the worst. I might, I might just might not be a good Calvinist. Might not be. But to end on what you and your wife Janine do here in Platte Park, the neighborhood that I call the best neighborhood in the U.S. of A. There you go. It's great. Yeah. What do you guys? What do you guys do? Because I I love what you do, and I want people to know more about what you do. Mm-hmm. It's it's way better than talking about Calvinism. So tell me more about the ta- <laughs> about the table ministry in Denver, Colorado. Uh, so our our focus is to engage our community with the tangible grace of Jesus. Um, and so, for us, um, what that looks like is we we sense that there's a, a grace deficit in culture in general. Um, and so we do our best to actually show people what grace is. And um, basically, uh, it's an unmerited free gift. And so for us, what that looks like is we grow a lot of vegetables. Um, and everything that we grow, we donate. So either to food banks or school backpack programs or just simply to, to our neighbors. And so we do whatever we can to grow as much food as we can to give to as many people as we can in the hopes that people will accept a free gift and then in exchange for that free gift, 
give it to someone else. Um, and our hope is to, to grow in relationships with folks, recognizing that some people are open to this Jesus guy and some people are not, um, but we're not going to limit our relationships with people depending on their response to Jesus. So you would say your ministry is unconditional? It is unconditional and unconventional. It's also open and relational in a weird way. Yes. And it's irresistible to refuse vegetables that are really healthy and good for you. Although you'd be surprised at how many people look at vegetables and go, what do you mean this is free? But those who accept are persevering. That's right. That's right. And we... And we uh, challenge them to persevere because we don't want to just give a handout, but we want to create a movement. So whoever we give vegetables to, we give them a challenge to say, if you've given, if, you, if this gift has somehow made a difference in your life, we encourage you to sow it forward. So, you know, using the pun of sowing seeds that produce fruit, we encourage you to take some vegetables and then in return, not necessarily to us, but to the rest of the community, uh, do something that makes a difference in someone else's life. So we want to create a movement of grace. Um, and if that leads to uh, pursuing a, a relationship uh, with Jesus in faith, great. Um, and we can certainly help people along their pathway to do that. Uh, but our, our initial hope is to connect with people regardless of their faith background or um, I hate to say lack thereof, but if people are like, no, we hate the church and we hate Jesus, but we like free vegetables, then yeah. you, you can find us twice a week in the neighborhood. Yeah. And that's how a non-Calvinist such as me was predestined to find a friend like Craig. <laughs> no, it's great. I guess me too. I got, I got to say that with Dan and I, See? and Rob's still in the house. Rob's still here. He what left up, and he Rob? came back because he, he was compelled by the unconditional yes. election. Silent yes. Tell him Bob. Tell Bob. <laughs> so, I, but I would say that, yeah, all of us, regardless of our Calvinist, non-Calvinist affiliation, will say, that's good. That's good grace right there. We can all agree on that. Cheers. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Craig. Cheers.